Welcome to A Price Perspective. This is Nicole. I'm your host. And we're still to have joined excited day in including us to do woman incredible testimony with a mighty Miss Dorsini. Miss Jones was introduced to Simon in the Rough Band to the just within the family weeks. Past when she came and and young ladies in our spoke to the universities in our Diamond Academy. Her compelling, told, heartfelt, and story, incredible triumph of of trust, of resilient strength. And so it's with great pleasure that I introduce to the Priceless Perspective audience, Miss Dorsey Jones. Hello, Miss Jones. How are you? I'm great, Nicole. Thank you so very much for having me on your show. Yes, ma'am. Well, for the listeners, I, I, I just want to start. I'd like for you to start from the beginning. You have, as I said, just an incredible testimony, and you've been through so much. If you can share with our listeners a little bit about your story. Well, I would have to start when I was about two years old. My father died um, in a, in Norfolk, Virginia, and my mother um I was my father's only child, but while my father was in the war fighting for the Vietnam War, my mother had another child while my dad was away. My dad came back to the United States and realized that my mom was fully pregnant with another man's baby. Um, my father passed away shortly after that, and my brother was born three days after my father's death. After my, my brother was born, my mom ended up having two more children from another man. And it caused grief to my father's family because even though those children were not my father's children, they still took care of us as an equal. They they made sure that we all had. Well, my mom went to my aunt to tell my aunt that she wanted all of us to stay with them. But at the time, they had my mom um, would always say, I'm going to the store and I'll be back. And it would be weeks and months before she even returned. My family basically became tired of that. So they decided that, hey, we're going to only take what belongs to us and the rest of them, you're going to have to just take them to their people. Well, it angered my mom. So what she did was she packed us up and she took us from the family that we knew loved us. And she brought us to South Georgia to her family, who we didn't know. And when we got to Georgia, my mom dropped us off in a two-bedroom apartment with about seven people living in that home, and she went to stay with a man who she liked as a young woman. We were beaten just about every day, physically, emotionally, and mentally abused. 
Um, I remember getting beat with anything that my aunt had in her hand, shoes, belts, cords from a hot water bottle, you name it, I was hit with it. It, it, my heart was so sad and that I used to write in the, in the road, in the dirt, God, please let my mama come back and get us. Because I just didn't know how much more I could take. I was the oldest of the four. Um, finally, my mom, God sent my mom to pick us up. But my mom left me and she took everybody else. So that meant I, I was getting more beatings and more abuses coming. And um, finally one day, my aunt had me sitting in the floor in Indian style, and I just began to cry because I really missed my mom. But she beat me for that. She beat me for crying. And uh, my mom finally did come, and she took me where the rest of the children were. And for a long time, I thought that where my mom was staying, I thought it was so far away because all I was told was, your mother is across the river. And when you're a child, you think across the river is so far away. But it really wasn't. It was about maybe 10, 15 minutes at the most. But when I got to the location where my siblings were and my mom was, it was happy. The man that he was nice, he took care of us, but he had other problems. He was a gambler, he was a womanizer, and he began to fight my mom and put us out. And we did that repeatedly over and over again. So we ended up staying in a trailer with no lights, no water, no food, just a bed. And we're all piled up in that bed with no linen and just sleep. And my neighbor, I remember one time my neighbor was having a cookout, and that morning before the, the, the um, sun rose, I creeped out of the house and walked across the wet lawn, and I could feel the dew under my feet, and I ate the, the skin that was on her grill. I, I put the, the meat that was on the grill in my mouth just to be able to savor the taste. And finally my mom went back to the man that she was dating, and it was happy again, but then he'll put us back out. We'll walk the street all night long with the little clothes that we had. And I guess finally she got tired of it, and she moved behind him two streets over. And that is when my life changed. My neighbor, when I was 11 years old in the fourth grade, bought $20 up in my hand. And that was the first time that I bought two cans of green beans and a, a pack of beef stew. The next week, he fondled me, and I got a little bit more money. Time passed, and that's when my pants came down, and my panties came down, and he inserted his private in me and started having sex with me. And after he got through having sex with me, his brother started having, having sex with me, and then his father started having sex with me. And then later on, when they got through having sex with me, the man down the street was having sex with me. The man behind me was having sex with me. And before you know it, people across town started having sex with me. So I was having sex with just about anybody and everybody. Before I turned my 12th birthday, I probably had already slept with about 30 to 40 men in the community. And that became my way of living. That became my way of surviving. Even though my mother was getting receiving money from my father's death for me and my brother and herself, she wasn't managing the money right. She wasn't taking care of us. She wasn't providing for us. So I said deprivation was my mother. Death was my father, and unlove was my sibling. Because that's the way I felt. I, I, didn't, I didn't know what it felt like to be hugged by my mother. I, I didn't know what it felt like to receive a kiss from my mother. 
I didn't know what it felt like to hold my mother's hand and just walk down the street, even though we didn't have the resources to just enjoy the breeze of a sunny day and look up to the sky and just say, God, thank you for being able to hold my mom's hand and just walk the street. I never know what that felt like. So I started seeking love from people in the community, teachers, anybody that would love on me, I cling to them, and I long for that. And then finally, uh, when I became older, after living anywhere, everywhere, sleeping in the park, sleeping at neighbor's home, just staying anywhere I could lay my head, a family took me in. And they said, as long as I have a place to stay, you have a place to stay. As long as I have food, you have food. So I stayed there up until I graduated from high school, and then it was time to um, move on to better my life. And I was told that, hey, I don't want you to be like your mother with a house full of children. I want you to leave Bainbridge and, and better yourself. But because my grades were so bad and I didn't have anybody to really pour into me and teach me the value of an education, the only thing I had was Job Corps. So I left Bainbridge, coming to Atlanta, joined Job Corps. I was there for 20 days, and I heard about Morris Brown, Clark Atlanta, Spelman, and Morehouse. I walked down to the college a total of seven days. I was denied six days by the same gentleman. And on the seventh day, I went back. I was, I was persistent. I couldn't give up. And when I when he went to lunch, a new guy named Christopher Andrews was sitting in the desk asking me how could he help me. And when I told him what I needed, he called my high school and my guidance counselor, Mary Gant, who took me off the merry-go-round from sleeping outside, answered the phone. And she told him that her uncle was the first doctor in Bainbridge, Georgia, that he sat on the board of trustees at Morris Brown College and that it was a building named after her uncle. And if they did not allow me the opportunity to be a student at that school, they would never receive any more money from her. And when he hung up, he told me that I could be a student at Morris Brown. And that's when my life changed for the better. Wow. Now you talk about people like Miss Gant and the, the family that ended up taking you in and allowing you a, a place to live while you finished up when you think about those people, because I know when you came to Diamond University, you said when the men in the community were taking advantage of you and violating you, that people were talking about you, but nobody came to talk to you and to find out what you need. But it sounds like God sent people like your counselor and a few people can you tell us a little bit about the people who helped support you along the way and whether or not you still keep in touch with those people? Yes, ma'am. When I was younger, when I stated that people knew, I knew because the community was so small that people knew. People knew when you had a baby out of wedlock. People knew who husband was sleeping with who. People knew who was receiving um, government assistance. The community knew. So the community knew what was happening to me, but nobody nobody paid attention to it. It was like, oh, that's just Clara's daughter. You know, I expect that from her because who her mother is. She would never be nothing because her mother is really nothing. And that's the way society labeled me. But because you had people in the community that had a caring heart and really compelled to help me, that's when my life changed. 
My the very first person that that touched my life was my fourth grade teacher. She didn't know what was going on in my life. Um, her name is Shirley Clark, and yes, I do keep in contact with her. I know her telephone number by heart. I call her just about two times out the month. I'm very close to her, but the nurturing piece, the nurturing piece that I did not get. I remember she was my fourth grade teacher. She was working on her master's, and she had to do a segment on children in poverty, and she chose me out of the entire fourth grade class to do this study on, and it brought us close. And because she was giving me some attention, because she was loving on me, I kind of like started clinging to her, and I would walk from my house to her house just to be with her. And when she did this study with me in the afternoon. I didn't want to go home. I just wanted to stay with her as long as I could. So we formed a friendship over the years, and it stayed that way. With Ms. Gant, Ms. Gant was my high school um, counselor, and somebody actually told Ms. Gant that I was sleeping outside, and she called me to her office, and she asked me, was it true? Was that true? And I told her no. But I ended up coming back telling her that my house was deplorable. We didn't have lights. We didn't have running water. We were defecating in a bucket and taking it out in the woods and just not having food and not having the things that we needed that was essential to live every single day. To this day, Ms. Gant is very active in my life. I call her at least three, four times a week. She's 80-something years old. She's very instrumental not only to me but to my husband and my children. And there's other people. Oh, there's so many other people that I stayed with that gave me a day or two days a week or month to live in their home. So I, I would have to say many people reached out to me, but they reached out to me at a time in my life where all the drama and all the ugly things and all the the things that, that hurt me, that crushed me, had already happened. When I was a young child and this was happening to me, I was alone. I was I was desperate. I was hungry. I had no one. But I knew God was watching over me. I, I, I knew that he was sending people. And I knew when I hitchhiked from Bainbridge, Georgia, at age 12 years old to Norfolk, Virginia, looking for my family, who my mother took me away from, I knew that God was with me because... He didn't let anything happen to me when I was crawling in an 18-wheeler trucks with people that I didn't know, and they could have killed me. I could have been raped and thrown in the, in the, in the woods, but that, didn't ha- that did not happen. Well, there, there's definitely protection that God provided for you. There's no doubt to hear about uh, just even, and if you can share with the listeners a little bit about that journey that took you from Georgia back up to Virginia and how old you were and what sent you that way, and then what brought you back? Okay. Um, When I was 12 years old, I knew that I had a family that loved me, and I knew that my mother had taken me away from my father's family. And I knew when I was six years old that I had experienced love. I knew that, and I remembered that, and I held on to it. So... My mom, I left Virginia when I was when I was six, and when I when I turned twelve, I had probably went through at least two dozen men. It was many men that I slept with, and I just couldn't live like I was living anymore. I just knew that I had a family, and I knew that they loved me. And um, one day I got up 
and I realized I just couldn't live like that that, that anymore. I didn't want to, that kind of life. I, I, I wanted to go find my family. I remember my grandmother's address. I remember that address at, at six years old. And my fourth grade teacher was teaching us how to write letters. So I wrote the letter to my family, and my family, they ended up writing me back. It was their first time hearing from me since we moved. And that was like my, the, the only, that was the only time that I sent the letter, and they responded back. After that, we didn't talk anymore. Um, when I turned 12 years old, I decided that it was time for me to find my family, and I hitchhiked. And on my way of hitchhiking from Bainbridge, Georgia, to Norfolk, Virginia, I got in a truck with an uh, 18-wheeler driver, and he was very nice to me. And uh, I do remember him feeding me, and I remember getting sleepy. He told me I could crawl in the cab. I went in the back, and I fell asleep. And when I woke up, he was still driving, so I crossed over the middle part of the truck to get in my seat, the passenger seat, and that's when he took his his arm, his hand, his right hand, and he rubbed my left leg, and I told him that I had to go to the restroom, and he pulled over at a truck stop, and when I got out, there was a lady in there. She was asking me, where was I going, and I told her, and she told me to come go with her. It was I can remember as if it was yesterday. She said, come go with me. She put me in her car, and she took me to the address. And when I got to the house and I rang the doorbell, I told the lady who I was, and she told me that my grandmother had passed away and that my family no longer lived in that home, that they had moved to Lafayette Shores. But I remember that my mom had some friends there, and I gave them the name, and she looked it up in the phone book. They came and got me, and they took me to their home, and they told me, the following days, they said, when we come from work, we're going to take you and look for your family. But because I was so street savvy and that's all I knew was the street, I couldn't wait for them. I, I, I had determination and willpower, and I was going to find my family. So I got on the city bus, not knowing anything about the city, because I'm from a little country town. And what I did was I got on the city bus. Went, it was snowing, I'll never forget it. It was snowing, I had busted up shoes, no coat, and I had on, I didn't have on socks. And when I got to Lafayette Shores, I remember asking two children if they knew Jonathan and Angelique Holloman, and they said, yes, they live right there. I um, knocked on the door, and I remember my Aunt Patricia Holloman saying, who is it? And I said, it's Quan. And she ran down the stairs, she opened the door, and she hugged me. And she looked to see if Somebody was with me, and I told her that I hitchhiked from Bainbridge, Georgia. And she brought me in the house, called my relatives. It started right off the bat trying to prepare a better life for me. You know, in, in order for me to go to school, they had to take me to probate court and go through the whole formality. And since my mom didn't show up, the custody automatically went to them. And um, I was enrolled in school. I was living a good life, had a good home, clothes, clean clothes, nice bed. And my aunt, she used to cook just about every day. And I was sitting in the kitchen eating a homemade chicken pot pie. And it's like grief struck me. And it said, how dare you sleep in a clean bed? How dare you wear nice clothes? How dare you have a life like this when you know your brothers and sisters are in Bainbridge suffering with no food? So the following morning, I packed my bag like I was going to school, my book bag. And I hitchhiked back to Bainbridge. I put myself back on the street, 
and so that my brothers and sisters could eat and so that the lights could come on and so that we could have running water. But I started getting depressed again because I realized that I didn't have to have that life. I realized that I had a family that loved me and that cared about me. But I knew that my brothers and sisters needed me as well. So I stayed there um, for as long as I could. And then I got back in. Um, I started tricking men. By that time, I would trick them and make the older men feel like I was going to have sex with them. And then when they got me in a particular location and they started groping me, I'd already taken all their money out the back of their wallet. And then I would slide the wallet back in there pocket, and then I would tell them that I was going to get in trouble because I was supposed to be in the house at a certain time. It was a couple of times I did that I had way more money than I anticipated, and I knew I had to get out of town because someone's going to hurt me or kill me. So I caught the nearest Greyhound bus, which was in Tallahassee, Florida, back to Virginia. And my aunt and my cousins, they always received me. Um, no matter what the situation was, they never judged me. They always took me back. They never asked questions, never said I was a problem child. They just always opened the door for me. And that's that's the way it was. I think hearing that and also hearing about your fourth grade teacher and your counselor and the other family, for people that are listening, to just know that one person can make a difference. Just, first of all, being aware of things around you, not being afraid to step in, especially when it comes to children, because you were an innocent, innocent victim. Nobody had the right to violate you. All of the men, they had no right, but the silence of the community allowed it to go on, and it still happens today. The statistics are alarming with the number of children, both girls and boys, that are assaulted, that are molested by family and friends, that are abused daily. And life goes on for the neighbors, for the family members, for the friends, for the church members. But we have to speak up. We have to be alert. We have to have courage and get out of this mindset that says, well, that's not my business. I don't know. And labeling people, you know, as you said, people put a label and put you in a box based on your mother's decision, and that was unfair. So can you tell our listeners what happened after you got on the campus? What did you study, and how did your life change at that great university? I got accepted at Morris Brown College. I remember um, after after Chris Andrews talked to Ms. Gannon, she told him what she needed him to do. Um, I was remember now I was a student over at Atlanta Job Corps, but because I was accepted at Morris Brown, I couldn't live on Job Corps campus anymore. I had to leave, and because I really didn't have housing and um, things of that nature, and I didn't have the money to go to a boarding house, I was actually walking down Martin Luther King, headed back to Morris Brown College, and there was a two-story brick home. I mean, I'm sorry, a two-story great house sitting on the left side of the street, and my instinct said, go knock on the door. I knocked on the door, and a gentleman came. He was an older guy, and I told him that who I was. I identified myself, and I told him that I had just got accepted at Morris Brown, and I didn't have anywhere to live. And he told me, he said, this house is for drug recovering addicts. He said, I'm full, 
But what I can do is I can give you a tour of the house and you can stay on the balcony. And it was two folding chairs, like card chairs. And I used one to put my bottom in and I used the other one to prop my feet up. And that's where I stayed for a couple of days and I would use the bathroom to wash up and take care of my personal hygiene. And um, I realized after just looking at the house and seeing that it was deplorable, it kind of reminded me of where I came from, from my mama's house. So I walked back down to the college the following day, and I talked to the housing director. Her name was Marsha Brooks, and I told her my situation. And I remember her giving me a key, um, and she says, I'm going to give you this key. She said, and I want you to be quiet and not tell anybody what I've done. And she gave me a corner room. It was designed for two students, but I had the entire room to myself. Then I didn't have access to, to the cafeteria because I didn't have a meal plan. So I was hungry a lot, but I would just taste the, the cafeteria um, hallway, the floor, the first floor. And there was a woman that she asked me one day, she said, why don't you come in and eat? And I said, because I'm not on the meal plan. And she said, baby, as long as I'm at the door, you can come in two times a day. And I, I would go in for breakfast and I would go in for dinner and I became friends with people so we shared oodles and noodles at the time and just other little pocket stuff that they had and that's how I survived. And I remember one pretty summer day, the students were out just hanging out on the wall and I walked up to this guy and I said, um, I really like your tie. And he told me, he said, thank you, and he walked away. And he he he, he um bumped into me a couple of days later, and he asked me for my name and my number, and I told him, I said, I really don't want to give you my information. I said, because I'm on a mission. I, I want to get my education. I said, and um, all guys are saying, you just want to have sex with, with me, leave me, and I, that's not what I'm looking for. And he said, no, that's not, my, that's not me. That's not my MO. I was raised by my grandmother. But he insisted to get my number, he, he insisted that we go out for one whole year, and I denied him every single time for a whole year. And then one day, his counselor was my instructor, and she didn't tell us that she was not having class that day. So when class was canceled, I ended up going to get me something to eat, and I was sitting on the steps, and he walked by, and I spoke, and he spoke, and I said, well, are you going to ask me for my information? And he was like, no, because you always tell me no. And we ended up exchanging information, and he's my husband now. We've been together 20 years, been married 17. We have four children, and I graduated from Morris Brown College in 1998 with a criminal justice degree, and I am just truly thankful to the Lord for everything that he has done for me. What a beautiful story. After all that pain, you found love, true love. Oh, that is so beautiful. Now, if there is a listener who was tuned in this evening who may be in a situation much, much like you were, perhaps they are being violated by someone they know, or maybe uh, they've had things that have happened to them and they've dealt with guilt and shame and condemnation, although they are truly victims, what advice would you give to them? First of all, I would I would definitely want the victim to know that they are just that they are a victim that they are they haven't done anything wrong. It's definitely not their fault. 
And with me, I carried shame and guilt and embarrassment for many, many years and to the point where I really didn't even know how to love my husband, didn't know how to just really love him, love him because I just felt like I wasn't worthy of his love. I, I, I just felt like I had been violated and just taken advantage of. I really didn't even know how to love myself. So I would definitely want that young lady or even that young man, because boys are victims as well, just like you stated earlier, to know that they are treasured by God. That even though they don't understand what happened, even though they blame themselves, they have to realize that they are not at fault and that they need to share with somebody that they feel close to, whether it be a teacher, a minister, a friend, their their best friend's parent, because until they do, they're going to walk around just like I did with all that just hanging over you and just in your heart and in your soul, and it'll, it'll destroy you. So number one, knowing that they didn't do anything wrong, and number two, that it is somebody out there that'll listen and get them the help that they need, whether it's counseling, whether it's just being a listening ear, whatever it needs to for them to heal, it's somebody out there that'll give it to them, that they don't have to carry that shame and that pain alone. I know what that feels like. I know what it feels like to hurt and to feel like you are not worthy to be loved by anybody. Now, can you speak upon forgiveness? Because I guess the question that I'm sure many listeners would have is whatever happened with your mom and how how do you deal with her? Forgiveness. That's interesting. Because for a long time, I didn't know how to forgive. In my mind, I felt like my mom didn't love me the way she loved the rest of my siblings. I didn't feel like they endured what I endured. And I never, my mom had many children. I don't even know all my siblings and brothers. But the ones that lived with us, it was a total of eight that lived in in the house with me. And my mom showed favoritism. She would use the Social Security check that she was getting from my father and take care of my sister, who was younger than, than I was, and buy her the things that she needed, and she would neglect me. So for many, many years, I held that in my heart. Um, I never cursed my mother. Not one time have I ever cursed my mother. Not one time have I ever mistreated my mother. I always longed for her love. I always just wanted her to love me and put her arms around me and tell me that she loved me, and I never received that. And to this day, my mom just recently told me that she loved me. The forgiveness piece came with me just staying in the Word of God and learning that God said that you have to forgive. And it took a long time for me to get to that point. I I had to go to counseling and talk to a therapist. I learned how to, first I had to forgive myself, and I had to forgive the men who violated me. And I have truly forgiven them, truly, truly forgiven them. I have no animosity toward any of them that climbed on top of me and had sex with me. If I seen them today, I'm in a good place. I love my mother. I can put my arms around my mother and, and tell my mother that I love her. And 
just recently, maybe about two years ago, I said that maybe my mother did the best that she could by me. Maybe she loved me the best she knew how. I never understood her way of loving me or the way she raised me. I don't know her pain. I don't know if she was abused as a child. I don't know if she couldn't love me because my father died and maybe she loved my sister more than me because she loved their father. I don't know. I can't explain it. But I know that God, when God gives you a peace, when you truly have the peace of God and when you truly feel God's love, then it supersedes any and everything that you could possibly go through. And that's where I am right now. Do I hurt sometimes? I don't really hurt, but sometimes I still long for that mother-daughter relationship. So what I do with that is I channel that toward my children, and I make sure that I'm everything that I wanted in my mother. And that's the best that I can do. A love a child that I see is going through, whether I see them on the street, whether I see them in the grocery store, whether I see them in the mall, I can pretty much look at a child and dictate if there's something not right in their life. I don't know how I can do it, but I can. And most of the time, I'm pretty pretty right. I can pinpoint it. And I just try to give back. I just try to love people, especially kids that are broken. I don't like to see children hurt. I don't like to see children mistreated. And I don't, I, I don't like to see mothers putting me in before they put their children. Well, can you share with everybody what exciting things are going on? I know you've got several projects that are in the works, and I would love for them to hear about the great things that God is doing in your life and how they can hear more about your story and just witness it. Well, I just finished writing my first book, Stretch Beyond Measure, When the Angels Were Crying. That book is actually in the process of being released next month in July. Uh, this coming Saturday, which is the 15th of July of June, I will be doing a documentary with Daryl Roberts and Eddie Williams III. They actually produced My America the Beautiful 1 and 2, and they're working on 3 now, and they're actually doing a documentary on me this Saturday in my hometown of Bainbridge, Georgia. And eventually I would like to start my own nonprofit organization called Mama's Angels. And if you take my children's initial, the first initial of each of their names, you will have the word mama. And everybody knows that a mama is supposed to nurture, love, and take care of her young, take care of her children so that they could grow up to be successful in society. And we all know that God said that his children are his angels. So that's how I came up with Mama's Angels Foundation. Um, it's in the works. Um, and... I'm also working on a website, so right now that's under construction. But if your listeners had to reach me or make contact with me, they could always contact me at 404-539-1530, or they could send me an email at dorseyjones95 at me.com. Well, thank you so much, Ms. Jones. If there are listeners who are looking for a speaker, for a presenter, for somebody to just come and inspire and lift up and empower their young people. Ms. Jones is it. If you 
happen to work with, if you're an educator, if you happen to work with people who work with kids, even having her come and tell her story is powerful and can help heighten the senses um, and help people understand that one person can make a difference and can be impactful in helping to turn a child's life around. I am so happy for you, Ms. Dorsey, that you have found your voice and that you're not allowing shame and condemnation to silence you because that's what the enemy wants. He wants people who have gone through situations to just quietly move on. But your strength can actually empower generations and generations to come because I do believe that there are not only children, but there may even be adult listeners who have taken the things from their path and it's allowed them to be silent in shame and in condemnation. But that's not the life that God would have for us. He allows our test to become our testimony. And so I just pray that you would continue to use your voice mightily for his glory. And I am really, really excited to see the things that are in store for your future. So thank you so much for being a guest on A Priceless Perspective. You all heard her information. Be sure to reach out to her and follow her. Thank you for joining us, Dorsey. Thank you. And, Ms. Steele, I also want the listeners to know that child exploitation and human trafficking, it is it not only in third world countries. It's right here in your backyard. I guarantee you if you get in your car, drive three blocks down the road, turn right, you are looking at it. When you go to the hair salon, when you're in the grocery store, the person behind you, in front of you, to your right and to your left could be a victim. Don't turn a deaf ear and don't be blind to it just because it's not happening into your house. Pay attention and be concerned because it really does take a village to raise a nation. And God bless and thank you for having me on your show. The issue of human trafficking has reached epidemic proportions and the victims are real. Across this world, there are young boys and girls whose innocence is being stolen day after day at the hands of adults who should be providing shelter and protection. But instead, they manipulate, cohort, abuse, violate, and control the innocent. Whether at the hands of family members, neighbors, or total strangers, the physical and emotional scars run deep and for many may never be erased. According to the FBI, the average age of a child forced into prostitution is 11 to 14 years old, with some as young as nine. The CDC reports one in four girls are sexually abused before the age of 18. As disturbing as these statistics are, it's happening every day in America and around the world. We must wake up, people. We've got to be alert and be aware of what's going on around us and be a voice for the voiceless. If you're listening to this show and you know or suspect of a child who's being abused or violated, be sure to alert authorities. It's not your job to investigate. It's your job to report. And if you happen to be listening to the show and you have or are being touched inappropriately, please tell a trusted adult. For anyone who has had to endure such horrific circumstances as Ms. Dorsey Jones, 
No matter what the situation, remember it is not your fault. And if you've allowed the weight and the pain of the past to weigh you down, I hope that you would choose this day to be set free. I pray that you would do as Miss Dorsey has done and find your voice and use it to help set yourself and others free. While your innocence may have been stolen, that in no way depreciates your value. Though a stolen treasure for a season, you are still a priceless treasure in God's eye. There is so much more he still desires to do in and through you. I'm Nicole Steele, and this is my Priceless Perspective. This show has been brought to you in part by Simon in the Rough Youth Development Program Incorporated and Gem Makers LLC. 